Father, this morning again, we desire to uh, lift up your name and to praise you, to get a glimpse of who you are from your word and what you desire <coughs> of us. And we desire to set aside all distractions, anything that may hinder us from gaining what you have from your word today. If there be sin, may we confess it and may we be in full fellowship with you. May we be able to concentrate and understand and that you might give us illumination. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Well, we have distinguished guests today, Robbie and his wife, Pam. I've mentioned, I don't know if you remember, but last summer he invited me to fill his pulpit. Great honor. He's the pastor of West Houston Bible Church on the board of Chafer. Takes groups to Israel, does all kinds of stuff. He didn't bring his pastor clothes, but you have a you have a three minute sermon for us, Robbie. <laughs> Not this morning. Here's your opportunity. Three minutes, Max. <laughs> Is that possible? Is that possible? I could quote Jay who allegedly was speaking in chapel at Dallas Seminary. Just before he got up to speak, he found out he had twenty minutes. So when he got up to speak, he said, "In." I just found out I only have 20 minutes to speak. You cannot say anything significant about the Bible in 20 minutes. Let's close my record. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this morning we're going to take a look at the Book of Romans again. And just by way of introduction, I uh, was asked about mysticism. And unfortunately, the church is plagued even. Obviously, the unbelieving world, there's a huge New Age movement, and at the heart of that is this mystical idea, also pantheism and other aspects of that. Could you please define what you mean by mysticism? I will define it. Thank you. Anyway, the question was almost along the lines of what you're saying, you know, not only what is it, and it centered more on, well, isn't the Christian life? somewhat mystical, aren't there mystical aspects to it? When we pray, isn't that kind of a mystical experience? When God works, isn't there some mystery, at least, to the way God deals with us? And there, there I think there's a, a definite distinction between those experiences that we have that are very, very different from, say, a new age and unfortunately, some of these New Age ideas have infiltrated the church, and a lot of Christians are partly into mysticism. I think the basic difference between the two is when when God is working and God is doing a work within us, that's biblical. When we attempt to enter into a mystical experience or an emotional experience, that's from the flesh, and that's not biblical. And I would say that's the basic dis- distinction. Let God do his work, as mysterious as it may be. We simply, as the text tells us, use our intellect, use our minds, use the things that God has taught us in his word, and base our experiences on it, rather than emotion or some mystical experience. And then I introduce that because we're in the book of Romans, and that's the stress of chapter 6. We've already seen in the passage, do you not know, when he begins to answer the issue that he raises. 
Then in verse 6, knowing this, and he's laying out this doctrine, this concept that he wants us to understand. Then in verse 9, again, knowing this, or maybe I got it reversed, knowing that. In verse 6, knowing this, then he lays out some more insight or more teaching, more doctrine. This morning, also in the passage that we're going to look at, he uses a even a different word for knowing. So the concept permeates all of these verses, in fact, this whole portion of Scripture, and actually the whole book of Romans in terms of what God has laid out, and it's on that basis that we evaluate, and it's on that basis that we experience what God has for us. So we're going to look at another concept. I kind of got a little bit into it last time. We didn't quite finish it, so... A new slavery. Now, we have primarily a negative concept of that, mainly because of the history that we come from, and also the culture hates it, and probably at any time. And so most of our concepts, uh, this concept is a negative one. But the book of Romans is going to talk about, in this passage, a new slavery. So obviously there has to be a distinction between this negative concept. In fact, it's a paradox. I kind of tried to introduce it that way last time. To a positive aspect or a biblical aspect, and we'll get to that passage. So we're talking about a new slavery. I start with verse 12 there, just kind of a review, a little bit of what we did the last few weeks, and my goal is to get to verse 18. So miracles can happen, so we'll see if we get there. Now, slavery in the first century was very, very common. In other words, most people were very familiar. In fact, most of the early believers were under some sort of bondage, physical bondage or social bondage. So this was a concept that was well-known, well-understood, well-experienced, you might even say. And Paul, I think, is taking that imagery and transferring it like Virtually every theological concept, every theological word even, I've said many times when we define them, every theological term in scripture comes right out of the culture. In other words, it has an everyday usage, an everyday concept, and it's on that basis that we build a theological concept or a spiritual concept. So also with the issue of slavery. So in our section here in the book of Romans, we're dealing with the Christian life. Paul uses the word sanctification, and when we define that, we talked about the everyday usage of that term, something to set apart, gave you some illustrations. So chapter 6 through 8 deals with sanctification, the way that we probably think in terms of what that means. It basically deals with how do we relate to God now that we are believers? How do we live? What are the principles? So in chapter 6, he lays out primarily the principles. I didn't bring my little chart, but if you remember just briefly, chapter 7 deals with the problems. I'm using P to alliterate there. Problems that we can encounter in the process. Remember, we're talking about progressive sanctification, ongoing, that that we experience moment by moment, day by day. Then chapter 8, to overcome those problems, we need power, and that's the focus of chapter 8. But under the principles, 
the main concept that Paul is describing is something that we can't feel, we can't see, and in some cases we don't even sense what has happened to us. It's internal, it's invisible, but it's real. And he's talking about an identification with Christ. He uses the word baptism. Remember, we spent two weeks on it, because when we think of baptism, we think of being dumped in a tank. So we had to take a closer look at that. But essentially, it's an identification with Christ or a union with Christ. Everywhere the Bible speaks of in Christ, it's talking about this baptism or this union or identification with him. And that's the key to Christian living. That's the emphasis of New Testament teaching. So he explains this doctrine of this identification in verses 1 through 10. Spent a lot of time looking at it. And then in verse 11 is the first command in all of the book of Romans. In other words, how do we respond to this concept of identification? And it begins by us believing that this is real. Believing that this is a new reality, a new identity. We have a new identity. He's laid out our old identity, our old self, who we are apart from Christ. We're in bondage. Now he's going to develop this bondage idea a little bit as well. So believing, verse 11, in other words, consider these things true. Consider them or put them to your account. Remember, it's an accounting term, legizomite. Put them to your account such that it is in your thinking and what the way you respond is you first believe that God has worked this work, creating a new identity. And then the last few weeks we were looking at 12 to 14, we can appropriate it. How do we appropriate it? Well, sanctification is by faith, much like justification, but sanctification also requires our cooperation, our yielding. The word that Paul uses, will encounter it again, present yourself. In other words, make yourself available. Now, in the context of slavery, we will see a slave gets up in the morning, gets ready to perform his duties, and he will present himself to the master, and from there he takes orders to follow through what the master has for him during the day. That's the concept that we have in that word in this context, and also it's it's also in 12 through 14. So, just quick review here, verse 12. Therefore, this is the second command that we have, or imperative. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. And remember the concept he uses a different imagery. The idea of reigning, what's that idea? Reigning what? Well, it has the idea of mastery, but in when we were looking, yeah, it's related to a ruler. In other words, like a king, and if you look up the usages, it relates primarily to rulership of a king. So don't let sin reign as a king would reign over a kingdom in your mortal body, so that's an imperative. That's the second one after the one in verse 11. In fact, there's a series of four imperatives, possibly even five if you consider verse 14. We looked at all that. And then we spent some time looking at so that you obey its lust. That's the negative aspect. That's the past aspect. 
Verse 13, he's going to give us the positive that he's going to build on beginning in verse 14. So we'll get there in a moment there. When we speak of lusts, remember we talked about the, the basic idea. It's just a desire. The, word, the basic word there, sometimes in the New Testament, it's used in a neutral sense, neither positive or negative. Now, we think of lusts more sexually, and I mentioned that sometimes it's used that way, but more commonly it's just used in a negative sense, any lust or desire that is unbiblical, but it's also used in a good sense. It's used of Jesus Christ. Remember, I gave you that example. It's used of the Apostle Paul. And in those contexts, good desires, godly desires, things that build up, and particularly the, I think it was, what was it, Philippians, I think, where Paul desired uh, certain things for the Philippians that were what God would desire. So obeying its lusts, this is at the heart of it. This is the battle. This is that where we apply this in a very practical way. And these desires can come in many forms. We've stressed that each of us have certain inclinations. We all have desires. And we're driven in some cases. The unbeliever is driven simply and only by sinful desires. They can manifest themselves even in positive ways. Ambition. There's nothing wrong with ambition. But for the sinner, it is always tainted by sin, and we can make gods out of these things. We're driven by career, for example. That's very common amongst primarily us men. We are driven in the job or whatever the career may be. It can include uh, goals and even positive ones, but if we are driven by them rather than another motivation, then they're sin- sinful. And the unbeliever, that's all he has. He has no alternative. He's bound in sin. Maddie. So could you say then that there can be God-given desires that God has created us with that we seek to meet in an illegitimate Absolutely. Everybody get that? Desires. In fact, desires in and themselves are God-given. God created us with needs, with desires. It's a matter of how we fulfill them, as Maddie points out. Material things, there's nothing wrong with accumulating material things, but if this is what drives us, prosperity and everything related to material things, then it is also sinful. We mention these things because these things come back to plague us now that we are believers. And that's the emphasis of what Paul is getting at here. In other words, you need to structure your life. You need to put things into place in your life. Biblical truth that replace these. We looked at those alternatives before. Fame and power, some are driven by that. Popularity, young people, politics. Lots of people try to please others, and they're driven by that desire to be viewed in a certain way by others, and usually desire a positive way. Even a boss can be put us in a situation where we're constantly pleasing him. The list goes on. This is just a partial list. Sinful passions, things in us that drive us to sin, certain pleasures, addictions. This is when it gets out of control, and now we're not only in bondage in a general way, but in bondage to something very particular, addictions. Even leisure, nothing wrong with leisure. It's appropriate at certain times. It's needed at certain times, but if it becomes... A habit, we call it laziness, and it's sinful. So what drives us? 
And that's the emphasis of the verse. Skipping down verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. In other words, all of these desires shall not become controlling in our experience. And I introduced this word. This is a different word. And I think he's beginning to develop this imagery, the idea of a master. Sin shall not be master over you because you have experienced this radical break, this radical change. We have a new identity. We are no longer under law or under a law system or a law economy, or you might even say a law dispensation. But now we are in a church age economy or dispensation, and we call that characterized by grace. So the word master there, does anybody remember what we called, what we saw? It's actually the verb form of kurios, kurieo, uh huh. So Paul is going to develop, and I'm going to use this slide to kind of develop this imagery that is going to go through the whole passage, and his purpose is so that we kind of understand that we can yield to two things. There's only two options. Both of them are going to result in a slavery. And one of them, only one of them is positive. We'll see that. So he begins the imagery with this word kurieo, to be a master. In this case, he's already used a similar word or a similar concept in ruling, the idea of ruling like a king. But now he's talking about ruling in a different sense or being mastered by someone in a very common sense in terms of, of the culture, like a slave owner. And the word that he uses, it's not real common. I think it occurs like nine times, but the noun occurs very frequently. It's a word that is translated, as Maddie said, uh, lord. So the verb form, to lord something over someone, or to be in subjection, you might even say, to, to be mastered by something, and it's related to the noun Lord, which the common word for our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been looking at these principles, and we're going to just add to the principles of chapter 6. We started off with grace is available to live Christian life. Secondly, death to sin is this new reality that is introduced. In fact, he starts in chapter 5. 5 is a little bit transitional, particularly verse 12 and on. He emphasizes, as I introduced, knowledge, in other words, biblical understanding, biblical truth. Knowledge of truth is crucial in the whole process, not mystical or emotional experiences necessarily. If God provides them, that's a bonus. But what we need to focus in on is the truth that he's laid out. And at the heart of it all, of the Christian life, is this unity with Christ That unity is the essence of this new life, the essence of this new identity. Quick review here. The old nature is the obstacle to sanctification. And we just talked about victory over sin is possible to the believer. It's not possible for the unbeliever. But it has to be in Christ. We focused on that concept. Seventh, we just looked at that last few weeks, involves faith in this new identity, faith in what God has accomplished, faith in who we are as new creatures in Christ. And last time we talked about 
the Christian life involves obedience to a new master. And now beginning in the passage we're going to look at, he's going to build on that. He's going to build and develop this, this principle, this idea further. This idea of obedience and this idea of a new slavery, this idea of a new master. And he's a benevolent and a gracious and a good master. One that you want to serve, one that you want to submit to and allow him to direct. So those are the principles we looked at so far. Yep. Jim. Point six. Oh, victory over sin is possible. That's the whole thrust of the whole passage. In fact, six through eight. But very specifically, I can't remember, I think verse... 9 and 10, I believe, where he's kind of emphasizing this idea, so we developed it as a separate principle. Are you saying that you can actually live a sinless life? No, I'm not saying that. That's why I asked the question. Okay. Victory over sin, it's a constant struggle, and it goes on until we're glorified. Remember, we talked about that aspect in terms of ultimate sanctification. David? Clarify a little. The uh, word we used last week was dominion. And that was a uh, term of mastery. Right. But literally says in number six, victory is, doesn't have mastery over you. Anymore. Sin doesn't have mastery over you. Right. Sorry, sin doesn't have Right. So the, the victory over sin is literally that we are under a new master. Right. Now. But also because of five, it's a constant battle. Rather than saying, oh yes, I can live a sinless life, which I cannot. Right. And the passage stresses the unbeliever has no option. He's dead. He's dead. Right. Okay. So he raises the issue of law and grace in verse 15. And I've been stressing also kind of a lot of parallels. I'll get to a slide there that brings out some of the parallels between how he begins the chapter and now in this second major paragraph, how he's continuing to build what he developed in the first 14 verses. So verse 15, and I'm not going to go into it, but he asks questions, rhetorical questions, much like what he did in verses 1 and 2, and he also gives an answer and gives a negative response as well, may it never be, and we looked at that strong negation there, and I kind of summarized it, are you crazy, are you insane, or we might even say absolutely not, Translators translate it, may it never be. So what then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, under this economy arrangement, but under sin. Remember that comes from verse 14. We just stated that. In other words, what is freedom all about? Am I free since I'm not under law to do whatever I want to now? And if I do, he's going to answer what's going to happen. But he gives the answer immediately, may it never be. And as we've said before, These questions that he raises are probably questions that he encountered as he ministered directly to people and shared the truths of the gospel and sanctification. Mary Lee? It seems to me that that is one of the really insidious lies of Satan that says, uh, oh, if you do this, then you are under slavery, but here you are free to do whatever you want. And we say, well, no, it's going to make me do anything where... We don't see, I mean, he disguises. Yep, and we're going to look at that contradiction and that paradox as we get through the passage. So, series of questions, and then verse 16, he's going to introduce that new principle. This is pretty much where we left off last time. 
this new principle of slavery, this concept that involves obedience. And again, do you not know? We've seen that already. There's the parallel that we have with verse 3. Do you not know? Except here, he uses a different word. In fact, this is a third word that he uses in this context. The word is oida. Oftentimes, not always, but sometimes it has this idea of a self-evident truth. And basically, he's going to develop this idea, developing the culture. In other words, you know these things because you're in the midst of it. You see it every day. In fact, you experience it every day. So, oida, this is self-evident. You should know this. Do you not know it? If you don't know it, then you're living on a different planet. self-evident. And I've already mentioned there's kind of the structure of this paragraph. I'm not going to stress that today. We looked at that last time. But uh, 1 through 14 kind of parallels 15 through 23, two major paragraphs. Beginning with questions, rhetorical questions, laying out principles. Verse 16 is the principle of this passage. And then he gives the explanation of the principle. That's the rest of the passage. Same pattern. So one and two, rhetorical questions. The concept of knowing, again, stressing throughout verse 3, verse 6, verse 9. Now again, verse 16. Except he uses a different word now. Do you not know that when, here's the principle, when you present, we saw that word. What was it? Haristomy, I think. When you present yourselves to someone as a slave, the idea is when you get up in the morning and you get ready to serve your master, this is very common, even if you are a master, you were familiar, obviously, and when you are ready to serve, you present yourself, you have two options as a believer that he's going to develop. You can be a rebellious slave and want to do your own thing that day, but if you're an obedient slave, you present yourself to the master. I'm ready for the day. I'm ready for work. I've got my work clothes on. I've got all the tools. i got everything ready. I'm available for you. So when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, there's the concept. There's the word, paristomy. That parallels not only verse 13, well, First twice there, but we've seen it elsewhere as well. And now we have it in verse 16. When you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves. There's the heart of it. The imagery of slavery. So we have a second thing here. We have a different word. Slave. It's the common word doulos, a bondservant. I mentioned that there's at least five different words that could be used to describe this servant-master relationship, some of them milder, some of them with lots of responsibility and, quote, freedom, and others like doulos, most servile in many contexts, and, in fact, a term that is very common that is used for believers. Our new identity involves that we are bond servants. That's how Paul, that's how the translators translate that in relationship to Paul and us as well. So this imagery continues, and in fact, it's going to go throughout this passage. So most abject. One bound in service to another. That's the basic idea of slave. Do all the word studies on it. And just to show that it's kind of 
permeates the passage, the next verse there, but thanks be to God, though, that though you were slaves of sin, verse 18, having been freed from sin, even there the concept of freedom, that part of the imagery there. Here's the verbal form of doulos. You became slaves of righteousness, skipping down verse 19. For just as you presented your members, he goes back to it in verse 19, presenting your members as slaves to impurity. There's going to be a product. There's going to be a result in that. He lays that out. But now you have an alternative. You have a different way. Now present your members as slaves. There it is again. Do lots. Slaves of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin. See how it kind of continues through the passage. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved, another verb form. So the noun occurs five times in this context, the verb two times. See the imagery? Now, the purpose of the imagery is that we not get hung up on that, but that we transfer it into Christian living and realize that this new slavery is not only desirable, but is actually to our benefit, and it produces something. Just as as a slave in that culture, harvested crops, produced something that was profitable for the family, cared for the animals that were useful and also beneficial. So also, transferring that concept, we can be useful to a new master to accomplish eternal work. Bill. So, maybe you're going to get to it, but is this picture of... You and Maddie always like to jump ahead of me and keep me on track. Yeah, go ahead. Is this picture of the new slavery like that of the slave in the Old Testament who was about to be set free from his master and says, I don't want to be set free. I want to keep serving the mindset. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Because it's far better for me to serve you than... To be on my realize own. how good I've got it, even though I am this this slave, and just yep. this perception of the honor that it is to right to be Christ's slave. Right. And by the way, in Colossians and Ephesians, this is the same word that is used in a context of literal slavery. Slaves be obedient. In fact, the word obedience is also there to your masters. The Two parallel passages, Ephesians and Colossians. So, uh, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. That's the principle. You don't escape slavery. You can only serve two masters, Jesus says. So we're slaves of one or the other. So what Paul is getting at here, if we are slaves to that that is going to produce eternal effects, that's where we need to focus. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Notice the idea of obedience. Someone is slaves for obedience. Common word in the New Testament and in a slave context. Very common as well. In verse 16, we have the noun and the verb. The noun two times and the verb. Uh, The one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience, resulting in right living and all that goes along with righteousness or right relationship with God. It's going to produce eternal effects. He's going to develop that further. We won't get that far today. So we have the imagery developed. One more stage. <coughs> Obedience. That's the main function of a slave. Obedience. 
main function. That's their purpose for existence. That's at the heart of who we are in Christ. So we need to remove from our thinking that negative aspect, except when it's in relationship to that old way of living and focus on this positive idea in terms of what God's going to produce eternally. So we have the alternative, and that was the focus of what we looked at. We have a choice. We can believe what God has done and focus on that new identity and now yield ourselves to either one of two things. There's only two options. Either of sin resulting in death. And throughout this passage, what have we been saying? The meaning and the usage and the way Paul is using the word death. It's used how? Well, spiritually, in a comprehensive sense is the word that I've been using. In other words, all of the aspects of who we are as unbelievers is tainted by sin and death. So it involves our intellect, it it involves our emotions, it involves our relationships, it involves our desires, That we, we focused on that. And it even involves our physical bodies. So Paul is using it, particularly starting in chapter 5, in this more comprehensive sense. Not in the sense of ceasing to breathe or the stoppage of our heart from ticking. So he's talking about either sin resulting in death. He's not talking about dying. He's not talking about eternal things here either. He's talking about you can live your life breathing, heart beating, and still experiencing That old life of death. Your mind is not focused on eternal things. It's focused on maybe what you're preoccupied with at any given moment. Your emotions are back and forth. Everything else. So it's this comprehensive, ongoing, living dead, if you will. So you have the choice. Somebody have a comment? Another concept that permeates the two sections is this idea of sin and death. Continues in the last part, in verse 16. Maddie. So you're saying that he's not really talking about those ultimate sins? Not in this context. But He's talking about is. sanctification. He's okay. talking about... But there is there is a point where that is yeah. ultimate. I mean... Yeah, that's the, that's the end product. But the focus right. of this passage is day by day. We can be Christians day by day... That's why he says either, and we have the option, and this is the battle of the Christian life. Am I going to live in Christ moment by moment, or am I going to live in sin and death that produces death, produces nothing eternal? That's whole thrust. Uh, We won't get to verse 19. We won't get to verse, what is it, 22 today. But the end product, that's where he uses the term sanctification. In other words, he's talking about this process of sanctification. Okay? So the end of verse 16, here's the alternative. Or obedience, that's the word, main function of a slave, obedience resulting in right living in this context. This is, in this context, the same word that we've seen over and over, dikaiosune, It's not justification. In other words, it's not the idea of imputed righteousness. But in this context, it's this ongoing growth in righteousness. So that would be 
say practical? Yes, practical or ongoing or experiential righteousness, okay, in this context. And we've seen righteousness throughout the book, one of the last times in the last section. So we have all these parallels, verse 13, now we're verse 16. So then when you're talking about the idea of victory over sin and this growth in righteousness, it looks like it's a progressive change yes. that is kind of taking back the, the conquered land. You might, you might say that. Very good. And there's a very, or it would be sin, right? Or there's, a, a, or a, or there's a moving, moving backwards. backwards. Yep. And there's no, and that's the Christian life, no the battle. Static. There's no static place. Right. Only two you're options. Are you moving forward or are you moving backwards? Right. Very good. I think Paul's developing that. So let's talk about, and we'll kind of close here, with biblical slavery. We've already seen it's one bound in service to another. And we are all in that situation, believers and unbelievers. We never escape it. Beginning in verse 17, which we'll get get to here, we'll conclude with, there is this transformation that he's already introduced, that we've already discussed. And he begins with thanksgiving in verse 17, because we know that it's not our own efforts. He's going to stress that in chapter 7. It's not our obedience to the law. It's not just raw obedience. But it's in Christ, so we start by thanking God, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, he reminds us of that past condition, slaves, the usage that we looked at earlier. Though you were slaves of sin, the unbeliever, he seeks maximum freedom. So that past life of being bound as a slave to sin The unbeliever is constantly trying to be free, and the more he tries to be free to do whatever he wants to, the more he is mastered by whatever he is pursuing. So he's a slave to the sinful desires. We looked at verse 12. That's all the unbeliever has. He's only free from the Creator. He's only free from the Savior. That's the only freedom he experiences. And if we were to look at verse 20, you can look at it. I won't, we won't read it, but he's only free from righteousness is what verse 20 tells us. That's our past. That's the unbeliever. Did you get it there, Gene? You want to read it real quick? Which one? 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free regarding righteousness. Okay, because we had no righteousness. Any righteousness we had were like Isaiah says, filthy rags. And then in the middle of verse 17, we have a commitment to a new life and a new slavery. The alternative, you became obedient from the heart, I think alluding to your initial commitment to Christ. It was a heart response to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Notice again the emphasis of teaching and knowing and what God has revealed. That form of teaching we had more time, we could break that down, but for now, let me just mention this form of teaching is this body of truth that the apostles laid out, beginning with the gospel and the gospel message, things related to it. And then verse 18, this new slavery, he's going to detail that in more detail. 18, and having been freed from sin, keeps going back to that, because we keep going back to it. Having been freed from sin... Even the word freed there 
part of the imagery that he's developing here. The idea, I won't get into the details of the word, but another word, to make free, to set free from bondage. Different word. The translators translated a different word. We looked at that in verse, what was it? Oh, can't remember. But this is a different word. This one's more related to freedom in a, even a physical sense. You just say that word. Ah, there you go. Eleuthero, our Greek scholar has got it. Okay, I've got it transliterated there for you. You became slaves of righteousness. We already talked about that term. Things that are going to produce eternal effects. So biblical slavery, we as believers have been set free from that bondage to sin and That's at the heart of everything he's talking about, particularly and very specifically 6 and 7, verse 11, but we can almost include the whole passage. So we are now free to not sin. We've been stressing that. The unbeliever has no other option. We are also free to serve a new master. That's the focus of 17 and 18. New options. Eternal things can be accomplished. And here's the paradox. The unbeliever seeks maximum freedom and only finds himself more and more bound to the point that in some cases he's addicted and can't even break away. The believer, the paradox, the more, the more free that we are is when we are most bound, you might say, to a new master. That's the only place that we find freedom. Next time we'll start with verse 19 and look at verse 20. He's going to contrast. And here he's going to emphasize more the end product of sanctification, the end product of obedience, the end product of what this new life can bring. And notice he begins, I'm speaking in human terms. We'll start there next time. Because of the weakness of your flesh, in other words, to communicate spiritual things, sometimes we need imagery, sometimes we need examples, and that's what he's doing here. So these human terms is part of the image. He's just explaining what I've done. I've given you some imagery here. I've given you something that you can relate to, something that you experience every day. I've given you something of an analogy, some imagery, in order that this cements in your mind the spiritual truth of presenting yourself to a new master. David. I developed a thought about slavery itself. That slavery, imagery, and association is important to the world simply because they cannot acknowledge that they have a Lord. Yes. Very good. And the more they deny it, the more it applies. Okay. After our concluding thought, I'll let you close for us, David. Yeah. Okay. We are most free when we are most a slave to our Lord. You want to close? Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for your mercies and your grace that you indeed have provided us a way that we can come to you as bond servants and present ourselves and you can lead us to the cross every day and deliver us from evil by your power, by your Holy Spirit and lead us into a new life that is most pleasing to you. Commit this time to you, Jesus. Amen.